0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome back to Mysteries Abound, everyone. This is episode 13. This week we'll be looking at a number of stories, including an unusual one that's entitled Brain Piercing, an Extreme Body Piercing Idea. And we have an article entitled What is the Philosopher's Stone? Now, the Philosopher's Stone was, I think, the title of the first Harry Potter film, although in the United States it might have been called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But in England and Australia, it was entitled Philosopher's Stone. Anyway, the article explains what it's all about. Another one is an unusual story about the eighth wonder of the world, or the so-called eighth wonder of the world. The story of Gif, a talking mongoose. We'll be having a look at a UFO report from Mexico City. And in Madagascar... They've discovered a massive, self-destructive palm, yes, palm tree. From the Mysteries magazine, we're going to have a bit of a brief look at Project Serpio. And from the Unmuseum, the Great Texas Train Crash at Crush. And according to a British expert, UFOs have been here since 1947. Those and other stories are coming up in episode 13 of Mysteries Abound. Times when piercing was considered to be something extraordinary and even scary are gone. We are used to meeting people with their ears, noses, eyebrows and even eyelids pierced, but what if I tell you that one can have his brain pierced? An extreme body-piercing idea, and this is for real. They drill small holes in your skull, then pass a metal, gold or silver, ring through them. The trick is that the ring presses the brain tissue and invokes euphoria. The whole procedure is carried out under anaesthesia and after the ring is passed through, it does not cause any pain. So first of all they will cut your hair and then bore in your skull two tiny holes with a drill and drag the ring through them with a bent needle. This will be done at the back of the skull in an area that is a especially sensitive part of the brain. The ring will massage it and keep you in a state of euphoria. The only problem you may face is that you will have to try hard to find a piercer. There are very few persons capable of doing it, and the price is about $1,000 for the whole procedure. The people who do it already have said that brain piercing is something less harmful and cheaper than drugs. Doctors say it may cause irreversible damage to your brain, but no pleasure comes for free. Anyway, can this become a piercing of the future? A constantly happy, brain-pierced nation? How does this sound? Well, according to some of the comments, this, it sounds retarded, and I'm afraid I tend to agree. was the central part of the first Harry Potter book and of course the first Harry Potter film, The Philosopher's Stone. So, what is the Philosopher's Stone? And this article comes from the www.xcommunicate.net. The Philosopher's Stone or lapis philosophorum has long been an item of obsession for many throughout the centuries. But what is it exactly? and why do so many people covet it? The legend and acquisition of the stone are as diverse and unique as most legends. The legend of the stone first began in the late 1500s by an Italian alchemist. The stone was said to be able to transmute base metals into gold. Legends also state that the stone can be only acquired by the truly pure and divine. Those that possess the stone can grind it up into an elixir that will provide perpetual youth. However, one must still imbibe food and drink or risk their stomach shrinking. The elixir, vitae, as it is known, will keep one from needing drink or water as well. It is understandable how one would spend their life attempting to acquire the stone, especially since it can grant riches and eternal youth. What is the stone made of? Well, depending upon what you read, it can be made from solidified fire or is merely a tincture that when applied to metal changes it to gold. Edward Kelly was said to have possessed the Philosopher's Stone and was able to make lead into gold. It is interesting to note that Edward Kelly also helped John Dee to acquire the Enochian alphabet. It is doubtful, however, that Kelly had possession of the Stone of Legend, because Kelly actually ended up dying in prison. A place where Kelly was placed for, drumroll please, turning lead into gold, or what we call fraud. Another person who was said to possess the Philosopher's Stone, or at least knowledge of it, was Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas was a famed French alchemist that allegedly received his knowledge of alchemy from a book given to him by an angel. Nicholas and his wife Pernell used the book to create the Philosopher's Stone. In fact, there are real French records that detail Flamel being able to transmute lead into gold. The legend extends from beyond this to say Nicholas and Pennell used the stone to achieve physical immortality. Most recently, Nicholas Vermeule played an important role in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. The Rosicrucians were a group of mystics of which it is said also possessed the Philosopher's Stone. The Rosicrucians guarded the stone's secret zealously, giving it only to those who were worthy of it. However, they sought the stone solely for spiritual aspirations and not those of greed or immortality. However, truth be told, the alchemical secrets of turning lead into gold were actually a metaphor for ascending into a spiritual consciousness, the philosopher's stone being the quintessential state of enlightenment. Transmuting lead to gold was much akin to the Freemason system of a Mason starting as a rough Ashlar and upon attaining mastery became a perfect Ashlar. The lead is the base or gross state of spirituality, and the gold is becoming pure and divine. The Philosopher's Stone would then be achieving a perfect spiritual equilibrium. Another view on the Philosopher's Stone was that its creation took place during sexual intercourse by a mixing of the male and female spiritual energies. The Stone would be the resultant union between male and female. No matter whether the stone is real, legend or metaphor, it still provides a very robust reflection point for the imagination. Many creative works still use the stone as the base of a story. The Philosopher's Stone remains a mystery, but based upon the times of its creation, it would be safe to assume it is more metaphor than reality. And coming up in a few moments is the strange story of GIF, the eighth wonder of the world. And this article comes from the dolbyspook.110mb.com website. The strange saga of Geff the Talking Mongoose began in autumn 1931 in an isolated farmstead on the Isle of Man known as Dawlish Cashin or Cashin's Gap. The farm was home to 60-year-old Jim Irving, his wife Margaret and their 12-year-old daughter Voyrie. Jim had been a commercial traveller before taking up farming in his retirement. The farm was not a success. Productivity was dropping and the family struggled to make ends meet. They had no electricity, no phone and no radio. Their nearest neighbours lived over a mile away. One dull September evening, the family heard inexplicable blowing, spitting and growling sounds coming from behind the wooden panels that line the walls of the farmhouse. Jim thought a rat was to blame and tried in vain to drive it from its lair. The strange noises persisted over the following days. Jim set traps and laid down poison, but to no avail. In desperation, he even tried to flush the intruder out by growling like a dog. To his surprise, it growled right back at him. The elusive creature proved to be a talented mimic, It ingratiated itself with Jim by dutifully repeating his imitations of various animals and birds. Soon he had to only name an animal, and it would promptly respond with the appropriate imitations. At other times it made a gurgling sound rather like a baby attempting to form its first words. Then it began to talk. By way of experiment, Vairi asked the creature to repeat some nursery rhymes. It obliged in a clear, if very squeaky voice. Soon, it was speaking freely. It introduced itself as Geff and claimed to be an extra clever mongoose born in Delhi, India in 1852. A neighbouring farmer had imported mongoose to the island 20 years earlier to curb the local rabbit population. Geff was soon holding regular conversations with both Voyery and her father. He seemed rather less friendly towards Voyery's mother, Margaret. He began nesting in a boxed partition in Voyery's room, which the family dubbed Geff's Sanctum. Although Jim and Margaret both caught brief glimpses of Geff, only Voyery was allowed to look at him directly. She described him as being the size of a small rat, with yellowish fur and a long bushy tail. Geff soon became part of the family. During the day he would roam the island, riding on the back axles of buses and cars. In the evening he would return home and share the news and gossip he had picked up on his travels. Sometimes he would also read out items from the local newspapers. It announces its presence by calling either myself or my wife by our Christian names, Jim Irving wrote. Its hearing powers are phenomenal. It is no use whispering. It detects the whisper 15 to 20 feet away, tells you that you are whispering, and repeats exactly what one has said. Geff would often bring rabbits home for Margaret to cook. In return, he was given titbits such as biscuits, sweets and chocolate. He was also fond of bacon and sausages. The food would be left out for him on the crossbeams near the ceiling and he would sneak out and snatch it when no one was looking. Geff enjoyed singing just about as much as talking. His favourite tune was Carolina Moon, which he would sing along to with the gramophone. Sometimes he would bounce a rubber ball up and down in time to the music instead. He also knew the Manx National Anthem several hymns and some fragments of a Spanish folk song. On one occasion, he rather offended Voyery's mother by singing a lewd parody of Home on the Range that he had picked up from some bus drivers. "'You know, Geff, you are no animal,' scolded Margaret. "'Of course I am not,' retorted Geff. "'I am the Holy Ghost.'" Like many a poltergeist or adolescent girl, Geff had rather a short fuse. For example, he once flew into a rage when Jim was taking too long to open the morning post. Read it out, you fat-headed gnome, he squeaked furiously. He also seemed to enjoy deliberately provoking Voyrie's parents. One night, he made a nuisance of himself by sighing and groaning for 30 minutes without pause before confessing, I did it for devilment. On another occasion, Margaret found herself being pelted with stones as she walked home. "'Is that you, Geff?' she called out. "'Yes, Maggie the Witchwoman, the Zulu-woman, the Honolulu-woman,' taunted the impertinent mongoose." The Manx papers ran a series of gently mocking articles about the Dolby spook, as they dubbed Geff, which led to Voyery being teased mercilessly at school. Giff's fame spread to the mainland after Jim Irving persuaded the psychic researcher and inveterate self-publicist Harry Price to take an interest in the case. Even as Giff's notoriety grew, his visits to the Irvings became fewer and farther between. When Price eventually showed up to investigate in person, the marvellous mongoose was conspicuous only by his absence. In 1936, Price published the results of his investigation in a book co-authored with journalist Richard Lambert entitled The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, A Modern Miracle Investigated. Lambert's role in the case indirectly precipitated a well-publicised libel action involving the PBC. Although Price did not explicitly accuse the Irvings of perpetrating a host's neither did he validate their claims. Soon after Price's book was published, the Irvings left Cashin's Gap for the mainland. Geff did not follow them, nor did he introduce himself to the new owner, a Mr Graham. In 1947, Graham trapped and killed a strange-looking animal that seemed to be neither ferret, stoat, nor weasel. It answers to all descriptions, the puzzled farmer told the local press. Eventually Graham too left Gashens Gap and the farmhouse was demolished. In 1970, a reporter from Fate magazine tracked down Voyery for an interview. She proved reluctant to discuss her former life with Geff. Yes, there was a little animal who talked and did all those other things, she admitted. He said he was a mongoose and we should call him Geff. But I do wish he had let us alone. And the following story comes from the Inexplicata, top spot. .com website, and it's a translation from the Spanish. Date, 10th of the 10th, 08, Mexico. Another UFO videotaped over MCIA, and it's by Ana Luisa Sid. On Monday, the 6th of October... Daniel Sanchez Rosales documented a sighting from the city's Moctezuma district close to Mexico City International Airport. According to his story, it involved a very strange object that changed shape and even drained the battery on his camcorder. An eyewitness account follows. Ever since I taped the UFO at the parade, I kept an eye on the heavens with my camera at ready should anything come about. It turns out that that day I wasn't paying attention. Rather, I was preparing a bucket of cement, because we were doing repairs on part of the house. Even though I didn't have my glasses on, a powerful brightness reached me from the sky. An intense glow. Then I looked up and saw a sphere. I honestly wasn't planning to record it. It was a classic white sphere, and I already have many videos like this one. Furthermore, finishing the job was more important. But something gave me pause, and I changed my mind. I went to get my camcorder. In fact, I took photos first and then shot video. I never thought that it would do such strange things. Not only did it change shape and colour... It also drained my battery. I had 45 minutes and shortly after the low battery indicator appeared. I'm convinced that UFOs occupy the air corridors. I don't know why. But it's easy to see them out where I live which is near the airport. I've seen them come close to airliners. Many times the spheres become small or vanish as the plane goes by and then resume their original shape. I'll remain vigilant to any future events, and I'm certain that UFO manifestations will occur in this area. And in this article there is a link to a YouTube video showing us what was actually taken with the camcorder on this day. This website also has a whole pile of other Hispanic ufology reports and sightings listed way back to about 2005. So if you like a bit of UFO stuff, visit inexplicata.blogspot.com and inexplicata is spelt I-N-E-X-P-L-I-C-A-T-A. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com And this piece is entitled, Care Nevo One. And that's it. And as of this podcast, I'm going to be attaching show notes to the podcast as well. I'm going to make these a separate section on the Origins website, so it's going to be www.origins.info forward slash mysteries, which reminds me that if you enjoy this podcast, you may enjoy my others, Origins, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, and Bizarre Bizarre. Both can be found on iTunes or Podcast Alley or other places like that. If you get the opportunity, it would be greatly appreciated if you could provide feedback for the podcasts. This can be done through iTunes or Podcast Alley or wherever you found the feeds. By providing feedback for the podcasts, it raises their profile on iTunes or Podcast Alley or whatever and increases the amount of downloads that we get and therefore it makes it worth my while. To keep producing the podcast because I now I have a good, strong audience that's willing to listen to the podcasts. And while we're on the topic of the podcasts and the website, I'd just like to say thank you to those of you who have used the donate button on the Origins website to contribute to the running of the podcasts. It does take a long time to produce them, so every little bit helps and helps to cover the costs of producing the podcasts. Things like the computer equipment and the broadband fees and that sort of stuff. So any small contribution you can give to the podcast will be greatly appreciated. Those of you who do contribute to the podcast, I will give you recognition over the podcast as I do with feedback to the show. And coming up now from the www.unmuseum.org website is the tale of the Great Texas Train Crash at Crush. It was to be a spectacular 19th century publicity stunt with a carefree carnival mood. It ended in explosions, flying metal and death. Nobody will ever know what inspired that idea in William G. Crush's mind. By all accounts, he was a conservative man and a solid citizen not given to crazy ideas. Perhaps he was inspired by a similar spectacle done several months before near Cleveland, Ohio. Maybe the idea occurred to him just because his company couldn't figure out how to get rid of some obsolete locomotives. Crush worked as a passenger agent for the Missouri, Kansas and Texas Railroad, commonly referred to as the Katy Line. In the 1890s, the Katy started to replace their 30-tonne steam engines with larger, more advanced 60-tonne units. This left almost 50 locomotives for which the railroad had no use. Some were sold to logging camps, others found their way to gravel companies. Still, there were plenty left. Crush's proposal was to take two of the obsolete locomotives and put them on a track facing each other a couple of miles apart. The crews would then fire the engines up, get them moving and jump off. The trains would race towards each other, picking up speed until they met in a fiery and spectacular crash. The railroad would charge nothing to view the man-made disaster, but would profit from tickets sold for special excursion trains running to the site. The company accepted his recommendation and put Crush in charge of the project. Three engines were chosen to be prepared for the crash. Number 999 was repainted green with red trim, and number 1001 was painted red with green trim. Each was gone over carefully so that there would be no mechanical failures on crash day. I'll tell you, we really worked on those engines. Firemen in those days had to keep their engines in condition, recalled Frank Barnes, who was a member of one of the locomotive crews. The third engine was to be held in reserve should one of the other two fail. Before the crash, the engines took a tour to drum up business. We had a good time before the wreck though, remembered Barnes. You see, in order to advertise the event, we toured over all of North Texas with one of the trains. We went to Waco, Denison, and all those towns along the Katy. Thousands of people came to see the engines at each stop. A spot was chosen in McLennan County, Texas, just 15 miles north of Waco, near one of Katy's main lines to be the crash site. Here, in a natural amphitheatre formed by three hills, four miles of track were laid, and a grandstand set up for honoured guests. The Katy expected a large crowd, so two wells were drilled at the site and pipes run to several hundred faucets. A large tent, borrowed from the Ringling Brothers Circus, was set up to serve food. A midway appeared, featuring medicine shows and games. Politicians decided to take advantage of the crowd by giving speeches. The organisers expected between 20 and 25,000 people and built a special railway station at the site for the arriving passengers. A sign there proclaimed the station as Crush, Texas. On the day of the event September 15, 1896, people started arriving in droves. The special trains taking people to the event were so full that some brave souls rode on the roofs of the cars. The crowd swelled to between 30 and 40,000 people and Crush, for a few hours, became the second largest town in the state. While the crowds gathered, the engine crews started checking their trains over. Speed tests were conducted on each to help predict the exact point of collision. To avoid having one of the engines get away and run wild onto the main line, the rails connecting the collision spur track with the main line were removed. Since the couplers used in those days were of the unreliable link and pin variety, the cars were chained together so they would not come apart during impact. One concern was whether each of the engine's boilers would hold up under the stress of the crash. Steam engines use a large heavy metal pressure tank called a boiler to contain water heated to the boiling point by a fire fuelled by coal, wood or oil. At the boiling point some of the water turns to steam. Since steam takes up 1675 times as much volume as the water it came from, this expansion creates a tremendous pressure inside the boiler the high-pressure steam is transferred through pipes to the cylinders and pistons connected to the engine's driving wheels. The high-pressure steam can then move the pistons, making the locomotive go. Should a boiler rupture under pressure, the result would be almost exactly like a large bomb being set off. In 1865, the steamship, the Sultana, suffered a boiler explosion while travelling north on the Mississippi. The ship was packed with an unknown number of Union soldiers returning from the war and an estimated 1,700 people died, either directly from the explosion or from drowning as the ship sank. Up until that time, it was the largest loss of life in the history of the United States as the result of a maritime accident. In 1912, a steam locomotive being readied for a run at the Southern Pacific Roundhouse in San Antonio had its boiler ruptured for unknown reasons. The resulting explosion levelled most of the buildings in the railroad yard and much of the surrounding neighbourhood. A house and its owner seven blocks away were crushed by the front end of the locomotive as it fell from the sky. An estimated 40 people were killed and another 50 injured. It was clear that if one or both of the boilers were to explode during the collision, the event might be too dangerous to stage. Crush had gone to the Katie's engineers and was assured that the boilers on the engines were designed to resist ruptures, even in the event of a high-speed crash, and it would virtually be impossible for them to explode. Reassured, Crush went ahead with the event, Though, except for reporters and honoured guests, spectators were to be kept back a minimum of a 100 yards from the track. The crowd grew and grew all day and some 300 policemen were brought in to keep them in order. At 5pm, one hour late, the two trains were brought together at the expected point of collision so that photographs could be taken. Then they were slowly backed up the track To their starting locations. When all was in readiness, Crush, who had been overseeing the event from the back of a white horse, waved his hat and the crews in the locomotives threw the throttles to full. We cut the reverse lever back to the second notch, stayed with the engine for 16 exhausts, that's four turns of the drivers, and jumped, recalled Barnes. Those were good engines. They really got up speed. The engines, pulling only six cars each, raced towards each other. By the time they closed the distance, which took just two minutes, they were going at an estimated 45 miles per hour. The smoke was pouring from their funnels in great black streaks, and the popping of the steam could be distinctly heard for the distance of a mile, reported the Dallas Morning News. The rumble of the two trains... Faint and far off at first, but growing nearer and more distinct with each fleeting second was like the gathering force of a cyclone. Nearer and nearer they came, the whistles of each blowing repeatedly, and the torpedoes which had been placed on the track exploding in almost a continuous round like the rattle of musketry. The trains hit very near to the expected spot. What was unexpected was that the boilers on both locomotives exploded like twin bombs. There was just a swift instance of silence and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel varying in size from a postage stamp to half of a driving wheel, reported the news. The flying metal had a deadly effect people ran in terror. Two young men and a woman were killed. Six others were seriously injured. One of the official photographers lost an eye. The trains themselves were completely destroyed except for their last cars which remained virtually untouched. After the crowd recovered from the blast it swarmed over the wreckage to find souvenirs. Nobody knows why the boilers exploded. Afterward, Railroad officials speculated that each train travelling at 45 miles per hour and hitting head on was the same effect as if a single train travelling at 90 miles per hour had hit a solid wall. They suggested this was a much greater impact than they had expected, causing the explosion. Physics show that this is faulty reasoning, however. The real effect was no more than a single train hitting a wall at 45 miles per hour perhaps even less. In any case, the stunt expected to generate goodwill for the railroad backfired. William Crush was fired that very evening, proving that at least in the 19th century, there is no such thing as bad publicity. He was rehired the next day and worked for the company until he retired. The railroad quickly paid any claims against it and the memory of the crash at Crush slowly faded. It is unknown if famed ragtime composer Scott Joplin was in the crowd that day, but we do know he was so impressed by the events there that in the early 20th century he wrote Great Crush Collision, immortalising the man-made disaster in music. Some of you may know that my actual part-time job that I do beside podcasting is to work as an education officer in the local Botanic Gardens here in Brisbane in Australia. Uh, So I do have a bit of an interest in plants and their adaptations to the environment and that sort of thing. And I did read this article from the livescience.com strange news section with quite a bit of interest and it's about a massive self-destructive palm tree that has been found in Madagascar and it's an article by Andrea Thompson, who is one of their staff writers. Botanists are marvelling at the discovery of a towering palm tree on Madagascar that essentially flowers itself to death. The palm has a huge trunk that reaches a whopping 59 feet in height and is topped by fan leaves 16 feet in diameter. The tree is the most massive palm ever found on the richly diverse island and one of the largest known flowering plants. The trees can even be spotted using Google Earth. Hundreds of tiny flowers that burst from the treetop are pollinated by insects and birds and develop into fruit. As soon as the tree fruits, its nutrient reserves are depleted and the entire tree topples and dies. The tree was discovered recently by a French plantation owner on a walk with his family, who took pictures that became circulated to amazed botanists at Kew Gardens in London. The experts had never seen anything like it. DNA analysis of the palms shows that they were not only a new species, but a new genus of palm. Only three other genera are known in the next closest related group of palms, which are scattered across Arabia, Thailand and China. This evolutionary lineage has never before been seen in Madagascar. It is very difficult with current knowledge to explain how it could ever have reached Madagascar, said Kew Research Fellow John Dransfield. Dransfield and his colleagues, whose study of the palm is detailed in the January 17 issue of the Botanic Journal of the Linnaean Society, estimate that there are fewer than a hundred of the newly named palms on the island. Like many other plants and animals on Madagascar, the plants are under threat only 18% of the island's native vegetation remains intact. And coming up in a few moments is an article from the mysterymagazine.com website, and it's from their issue number 15. Project Serpio, Fact or Fiction, by Tim Swartz. First, let me introduce myself. I am a retired employee of the US government. I won't go into any great details about my past, but I was involved in a special program. This was the opening statement sent by an anonymous source in November 2005 to a UFO email discussion group coordinated by former US government employee Victor Martinez. The emails revealed the existence of Project Serpio, an alleged exchange program between the US government and extraterrestrials from Serpio, a planet in the Zeta Reticuli star system. The origins of the program supposedly started after two UFOs crashed in Roswell and Corona, New Mexico, in 1947. The one surviving extraterrestrial recovered from the Corona crash Supposedly, assisted the U.S. military in establishing contact with the Ebens, his fellow beings on Serpio. This communication eventually led to a 1965 exchange program, where 12 specially trained U.S. military personnel went to Serpio aboard one of the Ebens spacecraft, as part of a 12-year mission to learn more about Serpio's geology and biology as well as learning more about the Ebens. During the mission, it was learned that Serpio is approximately 37 light-years away from Earth, has two suns, is slightly smaller than Earth and has a similar atmosphere. However, the radiation levels on Serpio were higher than on Earth, so the team had to keep their bodies covered at all times. The Ebens had leaders but no real form of government and they lived in small communities with one large city which acted as a central point of the civilization. The total population on the planet was around 650,000. The 12-man team remained on Serpio until 1978 when seven men and one woman returned to Earth. Two members died on Serpio while two others decided to remain behind. Upon returning to Earth, the team was isolated until 1984 for debriefing. Of the eight who returned, all have since passed away of illnesses caused by the excess radiation from Serpio's dual sons. Nothing is known about the four who remained behind on Serpio. These reports originated from a highly placed anonymous source, that reportedly had access to audio tapes of the debriefing of the returning Project Serpio crew. The written form comprises the 3,000-page Project Serpio report, of which portions can be read at www.serpio.org. It is a good story, a tale that seems to have a ring of truth to it, and one that has been circulating among UFO researchers for more than 20 years. But knowing what we do about past UFO hoaxes can we accept Project Serpio at face value? Author and filmmaker Linda Moulton Howe was first told about an earth alien exchange program in 1983 when doing research for UFOs, The ET Factor, a documentary for HBO. At the time She was approached by Air Force Sergeant Richard C. Doty, who said he had been given approval to allow her to air secret Air Force information and video footage in her documentary. Some of this information, he said, involved an alleged exchange program of humans who left Holloman Air Force Base in 1964 for Zeta Reticuli. Howe was also told that three humans went, but one died on the alien planet. One went insane, but there was no information on his fate. And one returned to Earth and was living in a US government safe house on an undisclosed island. Doty promised to supply Howe with material that would confirm the existence of an extraterrestrial race, including official government and military documents, film and photographs. However, he continued to string Howe along until he finally told her that his superiors had decided against releasing any further information. Without Doty's evidence, HBO gave up on the documentary in 1984. Since that time, Doty's name has surfaced in connection with other alleged UFO government secrets, such as the MJ-12 papers, so it is no surprise to find out that Doty, now a civilian, is also connected with the release of the Project Serpio story, and this fact alone makes the story suspect. Other UFO researchers over the years have also been told similar stories about a secret exchange program between the US and an alien race, but the recent Serpio revelations contain more information that has been released to date. As to why earlier stories vary considerably on details, such as the number of team members sent to Serpio, it has been suggested that information has been deliberately leaked out in bits and pieces by those on the inside who feel that such secrets should not be kept from the public, and that errors were intentionally inserted in order to disguise the identities of the whistleblowers. There has been talk of the eventual release of photographs taken on Serpio by the exchange team, but so far nothing has emerged to lend credence to this baffling story. Until the time when actual physical evidence about Project Serpio is released, this story unfortunately has to be treated as just another unverifiable UFO tale, albeit an intriguing one. And as a bit of a follow-up to that story, or along the same lines, so to speak, there's an article from the www.telegraph.co.uk news website. And this one is dated the 8th of October 2008, and it's written by Chris Irvine. UFOs have been here since 1947. UFOs exist and have been here since 1947, according to a British expert. Editor of UFO data magazine Philip Mantle is set to unveil his findings at an international conference this month. He investigated the site in Roswell, New Mexico where many people believe there was an alien crash landing. He analysed rock, earth and vegetation. The area is surrounded by charred trees and bushes and a mysterious blue substance that dribbles down rocks. U.S. physician Dr. Ronald Rao said in the 1940s high levels of radiation pointed to a ship landing there in the 1940s. The area in the Nogal Canyon is close to the well-known Sirocco Desert site where experts say another object appeared to have landed in 1964. Mr. Mantle said, A good friend of mine, Ed Gurman, first found the site and I flew over as soon as I could. It was a real find. And as soon as I arrived there, I knew what a special and peculiar place it was. There is nothing around it for 70 miles. It is literally in the middle of nowhere. Us Brits really have beaten the Americans at their own game. And it is really great that we have done that. It really is revolutionary for the UFO world. Mr Mantle is set to reveal his full findings at the UFO Data Annual Conference later this month in Leeds. Well, let's hope something is revealed in this confidence that provides a little bit of light on the subject, but I won't hold my breath. Well, with that story, that concludes Episode 13 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I look forward to hearing from you all again in Episode 14. And it's bye for now.